It's Wednesday, October 10th, and this is The Daily Dive. Another shakeup is coming to the Trump administration. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, is resigning from her post and will be leaving at the end of the year. Haley is one of the most respected members of the Trump cabinet, and while at times she clashed with the president, she was a strong voice at the UN and an avid supporter of President Trump. Greg Hellman, defense reporter for Politico, joins us for why she is leaving and who might fill her post. Next, a new report is shedding light on nursing homes that may be pushing patients into pricey rehab treatments in the final days of their lives. The findings of the study raise some questions about financial motives as for-profit nursing homes were two times more likely to use what are called ultra-high intensity therapy than nonprofits. Riley Griffin, reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us for what to know about nursing homes trying to cash in. Finally, October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and you really need to stop using that free Wi-Fi hotspot, or at least be more careful about it. Using free public Wi-Fi networks can leave you vulnerable to cyber thieves. Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today, joins us for some tips on how to keep your data safe when using free public hotspots. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A lot of people are going to want to say there's a lot of reasons why I'm leaving. The truth is I want to make sure that this administration, the president, has the strongest person to fight. No, I'm not running for 2020. I can promise you what I'll be doing is campaigning for this one. So I look forward to supporting the president. Joining us now is Greg Hellman, defense reporter at Politico. We got the news that ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, is going to resign. The president accepted her resignation. She's still going to stay on till the end of the year, which kind of was a little confusing. Why announce it right before the midterm elections if she's going to stay on till the end of the year? But what do we know about her resignation and reasons? Why? Why did she want to leave? So a couple points here, uh, Oscar. As as you uh, correctly said, we have the resignation coming here just weeks before the midterm elections. Uh, clarified that the ambassador will be staying on through the end of the year. Another point worth mentioning is that she made a statement that said she will not be challenging for the Republican right. nomination in, in 2020. There are a couple theories here uh, about why she might be stepping down. For one, we, as we've already said, have the midterm elections coming right up here. It's a natural inflection point where you see a lot of turnovers in administration. So that's a possible reason. Secondly, the kind of turnover on the president's National Security Council with his new advisor, John Bolton, has reportedly uh, given the ambassador a little bit less room to maneuver among Trump's policy advisors. The same was said about uh, Mike Pompeo a little bit, that him and John Bolton were kind of stealing the spotlight a little bit more from Nikki Haley. And just her influence was a little diminished in more recent times since they've been brought on. And part of her letter in which she was saying publicly, she said that she was just kind of not necessarily tired of working for President Trump, but just tired of the whole thing. She had gone through a few tough years as governor with a lot of big events that happened and then thrust right into this. And, you know, obviously this administration is making news every day. So, you know, there's just a lot. And as she said, as you said, the midterms, a natural point to kind of turn over. She wants to relax and do something else for a little bit. She hinted that she might get into the private sector. That's right. Yeah, the ops tempo in this administration, I think, by anybody's count, is incredibly high. You're correct in saying she hinted uh, that she might want to get into the private sector. And that kind of brings me to a couple other potential reasons why she might be leaving. And I don't want to get into conspiracy theories in here, but it, it's been widely reported that she's in debt right now right. of up to uh, $1 million. 
certainly that could be a motivating factor. There's lots more money to be earned in the private sector. And then uh, there's no indication that this bears on uh, her resignation, but I think it's at least worth noting that a outside group here in Washington, D.C. has requested an ethics investigation into her potentially unethical use of private plane. And this is something we've seen take down a couple members of the Trump administration already. During her time there in the U.N., if we can get into that a little bit, she has been one of the consistent voices in the administration, one of the most high profile women in this administration. And she's pretty popular along the political spectrum. Republicans obviously do like her. I think there was a Q poll from April that said 55 percent of Democrats approve of her. So that's pretty good in this hyperpartisan world we're living in right now. That's pretty good praise for her. Although she did clash with the president a couple times. The most notable one was Russia. She was laying out something about sanctions. And then they said, oh, she might have been confused. She fought back very forcefully, said, I don't get confused. So there was a couple of moments of tension between the president and Nikki Haley. You're absolutely right. A couple couple threads you put out there. One, yes, absolutely. Up there with uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, among the most popular members of the Trump administration across the political spectrum. I, I felt it was notable that the ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, put out a statement talking about the leadership vacuum that would be left with Ambassador Haley's departure. But you're right. There have been notable rifts between her and the administration on policy. You mentioned the uh, Russia sanctions example with that famous quote, I don't get confused, but there have been others as well, right? There have been policies that the Trump administration has pushed over at the UN related to Israel, uh, recognition of uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital and a couple others that aren't particularly popular with the rest of the world and put her in a tough spot. And she navigated those very well. I mean, as you said, you know, there were some unpopular things that the president wanted to push through, uh, popular with the people there at the UN. And she helped through all of that. She helped through the U.S. decision to quit the UN Human Rights Council. She helped with Iran, things with North Korea. Through all of that, she was still very well respected. Who are we hearing that might be replacement? I heard (laughs) just random things that Jared Kushner or Ivanka Trump might be up for this role. And she had nothing but amazing things to say about Jared Kushner. I think she called him a genius. That's right. I've heard the same rumor mill as you have, Oscar. Those two names were kind of two two early names out the gate there. I don't have other names to throw at you in the parlor game at the moment, but I would caution that the president will likely take a few weeks here before he settles on picking a replacement. I wouldn't be surprised if, if it waited until after the midterms, and uh, I'm sure there will be uh, other names floated about uh, outside of the Trump family. Greg Hellman, defense reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Ultra high therapy isn't bad in and of itself. What's concerning is that residents were found to be treated with this high concentration of rehab during their very last week of life. Joining us now is Riley Griffin, reporter for Bloomberg News. We're going to be talking about nursing homes and This interesting study that came out of the University of Rochester, they're finding that increasingly these nursing homes are pushing patients into these rehabilitation treatments in the last days of their life. They think it might be financially motivated. The nursing homes get paid by Medicare and other things to put the patients through these rehabilitation treatments. And they're thinking that they're just kind of pushing them in the last few days just so they can get an extra payday before the patients are gone. What do we know about this study? What's going on? 
The study found that the proportion of nursing home residents who received ultra-high intensity rehab increased by a whopping 65% between 2012 and 2016. But let me backtrack. Ultra-high intensity rehabilitation therapy is a classification that is used to designate the amount of treatment given to a skilled nursing home patient. What that designation ultra-high means is actually treatment that exceeds 720 minutes a week of therapy or more, which can range from speech therapy to physical therapy. But the point to underscore here is that's more than 12 hours a week. So it's highly intensive. And we're seeing this increase across the board. While ultra-high therapy isn't bad in and of itself, what's concerning is that residents were found to be treated with this high concentration of rehab during their very last week of life. And the author of the study suggests that this could have been interfering with patients' ability to get other forms of care like hospice. Right. I think that would be the main concern is if you're treating them, obviously there are patients there at the nursing home, you know the status of their health. And if they seem to be in the latter days of their life, why would you be putting them through some of this intensive therapy rather than doing mm-hmm. some of the other stuff, you know, making them more comfortable, the hospice care, all those other things. What does this ultra high intensive rehabilitation consist of, though? What are they doing to the patients? Basically, ultra high is just a designation that refers to time. What they're doing is any form of therapy that ranges from speech therapy to physical therapy. So helping patients relearn how to eat or move their legs in a certain way. But the ultra high refers to the amount of therapy given. It sounds maybe a little cruel to say, but if they are in the final days, why put them through this stuff anyways? The author of the study suggests there are two possibilities. One is that nursing homes simply don't know that their patients are in the very last stages of their life. But the other possibility, which is much more compelling based on this research, is that nursing homes, particularly for-profit nursing homes, could be trying to maximize on the high reimbursement rate provided by Medicare, despite knowing that a patient is nearing the end of their life. So Medicare, which is a federal insurance program, doles out some of the loftiest rates for ultra-high treatment. And the University of Rochester actually found that for-profit nursing homes were two times as likely to use high to ultra-high intensity rehab than non-profit nursing homes. Are there currently any plans to change this structure a little bit. I noticed in the piece that said that if someone comes into a skilled nursing home facility with high degrees of medical complexity, meaning they need a lot of rehabs, they're more at an advantage to get all this stuff rather than somebody who doesn't really need that much rehab. They could be at an advantage and it's also advantageous for the nursing home itself, which is able to benefit from those lucrative reimbursement rates. Another point I wanted to make is that you were asking, should we be looking forward to that changing? Yeah, are there changes on the horizon to kind of help with some of this stuff? Yes. A year from now, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will actually be implementing a new patient-driven model that will determine reimbursement rates based on patients' condition rather than the amount of treatment that they need. And what have been some of the reactions from some of these nursing homes that might have been the subject of the study or just in kind of general from, uh, you know, interest groups? Obviously, the concern here is that they're doing this for profit and pushing these people through these treatments in the end of their days just to make a little extra money. What have they been saying about that? Well, the American Healthcare Association, which is an organization that represents thousands of for-profit skilled nursing homes around the country and a few nonprofits too, agreed that the payment system needs to be restructured. But they did push back against the study's methodology, saying that it was too narrow of a population to be generalizable. 
But the author of the study strongly disagreed with that claim. And then if you have a family member that might be in a nursing home or something, or you might suspect that some of this stuff is going on or they're getting too many treatments, things like that, what can you do to get a little more involved? What I can say is that since this piece was published, I've received email responses with loved ones concerned for their family members' care and also reporting instances where they feel that their family has faced some kind of trauma related to this issue. It's kind of an unknown, you know, a family member is there being treated and you trust the people there. So you don't know what's going on, especially, you know, if you're not checking in every moment that you have. So there's a level of trust there and reports like this come out and it gives you cause for concern. Many experts that I spoke to from within the nursing industry and also within advocacy groups have said that there's a great lack of information surrounding the payment processing and the treatment that these patients are getting. Riley Griffin, reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Stealing your online identity is very appealing to those who are rewarded for doing so. So that could be stealing your identity through your credit card information, your address, your social insurance number, anything that you may be typing in. Joining us now is Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today. It's October. It's also Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I did not know that this month was dedicated to cybersecurity, but we wanted to bring you along to talk about our own personal cybersecurity Specifically, this is something that we've talked about before. We wanted to go a little more in depth into is using these public Wi-Fi hotspots. Not that you shouldn't be using them, but you need to be super careful when using them. What do we know about these hotspots? Well, you don't know what you're getting. The big issue is obviously there's some privacy and security issues here with using a public free open Wi-Fi hotspot, as they're referred to, because you really don't know if there are malicious types out there trying to steal your data. And it does put you more at risk when it is a free open Wi-Fi hotspot. And increasingly, they're everywhere. You know, every little corner cafe has one. Even regular stores have them, you know, wherever you want to go, you want to be on the Wi-Fi, and as you mentioned in your article, you know, we all trade security for convenience and free is free. That's what we're looking for. Exactly. And that's it. They're everywhere and they don't cost anything. And if you don't have a great data plan with your mobile phone carrier, then Wi-Fi hotspots are a godsend because they're free. But there are a few things that you should know if you're going to still use them. And you know that there's added risks and a lot of people have that attitude like, well, I don't really have anything worth stealing or whatever you do, by the way. But just in case, and I don't want to sound preachy, but if people (laughs) are still going to use Wi-Fi hotspots, even with the added risks of having your data being seen by people you don't want seen. And that includes, by the way, the places that are giving you the free Wi-Fi because they, you may have, uh, and you may not realize this, but you signed off for them to see your browsing habits so they can learn more about you and market to you as well. But that Uh, even aside, I'm talking about thieves who are looking at the weak link in the chain in order to steal information, usually for financial gain. What information are they looking for mostly? I mean, if you go on to do some online shopping, maybe they can steal your account that way. Stealing your online identity is very appealing to 
to those who are rewarded for doing so. So that could be stealing your identity through your credit card information, your address, your social insurance number, anything that you may be typing in. But usually it's a credit card. The cyber thieves want to take a look at that and they could install what's often referred to as key logging software where they can see the numbers that you're typing in and then they've got your credit card info, even right down to your code on the back of the card that they can type in to buy something. And then by the time you realize this and cancel your card, they've already shopped uh, to their heart's content. They can basically take everything Mm -hmm. about you just by logging into the wrong Wi-Fi. Yep, that's it. That's one issue. Oscar, another risk are these phishing scams where they plant a message on your device that say, oh, click here, you know, I'm, I'm from, you know, your internet service provider, we've detected a problem, click here to resolve it. And then you are fooled into typing in personal information because you believe it's a legitimate source like your bank or your ISP or Amazon or what have you. The third thing that can happen are what's called ransomware attacks. So this is where your files are locked and the bad guys try to extort money from you in order to unlock your files. Think about the precious photos, uh, the irreplaceable photos and videos that you may have, all your documents for work, other information, and someone on the other end of either the phone, by the way, or through the computer says, you're not getting anything until you send me one Bitcoin or 500 bucks or whatever. I know on a larger scale, there was a bunch of hospitals that were going through that where people installed some type of ransomware and yeah, they were holding people's medical records hostage until they got a certain number of Bitcoin as well. Yeah, it's a scary thing. So the best thing to do is to reduce your risk and don't use a free public Wi-Fi hotspot. Instead, you can just use your own mobile phone as a personal hotspot, and that's ideal. Or you can just wait until you are on a legitimate Wi-Fi hotspot that requires a password. Or the best thing to do is to resist the free public Wi-Fi hotspot and wait till you're in a secure network like back at home. Or turn your mobile phone's uh, personal or portable hotspot feature on and use that to log into via, say, a laptop or a tablet when you're at a coffee shop. That's the best thing to do. If you are going to use the free public Wi-Fi hotspots, there's a few precautions you can take to reduce the odds of you being a victim of an attack. A lot of people say chief among them is to use a VPN, a virtual private network, just to hide some of that stuff and keep you under that radar. Right. A VPN is a great idea. It allows you to remain anonymous while you're browsing the web. And there are free VPNs available. I use one called BetterNet. There's another one that's very popular called Hotspot Shield. And it basically masks your online identity so you can browse anonymously. It's still not 100% and it, it may only be limited to your web browsing session and not other things you're doing. So be aware that there still could be risks. But even if you've got a VPN, I would encourage people not to type in your password for online banking or online trading or online shopping. Stick to basic tasks like streaming your favorite podcast, maybe reading the news, just sort of regular things that uh, don't require you to log in. Resist the social media. One of the smart ones that I saw that you put in your article was to be very selective of the networks you're using because there's this man in the middle tactic that a lot of them use. So it could you could be at a Starbucks and want to log into Starbucks free Wi-Fi and that might might be a fake Wi-Fi thing right there. So someone that somebody set up and that way they Mm -hmm. can hack you specifically. Good point. So there's two risks in using free public Wi-Fi hotspots. One is if you are on the legitimate, say, Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever, Hilton Wi-Fi, but you are more at risk because you're sharing that public hotspot with other possibly cyber thieves who now have a way into your device. The second risk 
is when you think you're joining a legitimate Wi-Fi hotspot, and it could be called something like Starbucks Free Wi-Fi or Hilton Lobby, but it's really what we call is a rogue network. It's someone maybe outside in a car, in a van. I know it sounds all CD, but it's, right. it often happens this way where somebody is creating a fake Wi-Fi hotspot, which puts you even more at risk because you are actually joining their network and they are getting into your system unbeknownst to you in most cases. Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Oscar. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.